Our sermon text for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. And instead of reading the whole thing at the beginning, we're just going to read it progressively a verse or two at a time as we go along. Uh, the one thing I want to mention about our sermon text this morning is when it happened. So the events described in this text happen at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is, like, this is literally the first thing that happens after he gets baptized and his public ministry starts. Very first thing. With that introduction, let's hear the first verse. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you feel the intensity in those words? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, not for a hiking trip, not for a camping trip, but for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. What is happening? Like, what does this look like to you as you picture Jesus going, being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? When I close my eyes and I envision what's going to happen in this chapter, I don't see sand and rocks and desert. What I see is something that looks more like this. Can you picture it? Two boxers are being led into the ring. And as they step under the ropes and into the bright lights, there is focus and determination on both of their faces because they know what's going to happen when the bell sounds. They're not here for a picnic. They're here to fight. And the anticipation builds as they take off their robes and they do that thing where they're kind of like shaking out their muscles and they're hopping back and forth on their feet and they're firing practice punches into the air. They are ready for battle and it is going to be a slugfest. You feel the anticipation. You feel the excitement in the air. Without further ado, let's meet our fighters. In this corner, we've got the devil also known as Satan, also known as the Accuser, also known as the Tempter, also known as the Father of Lies. And this fighter boasts an impressive resume, if you think about it. He's a fallen angel. So he's a powerful being, and he's very, very old. He's got thousands of years of experience in his tempting. He's also had a lot of success. He successfully tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and got them to fall into sin. And by doing that, he pulled the entire human race into sin. And since then, we all know this for ourselves. The devil has succeeded at many times and in many ways at pulling all of us into sin as well. Now, like any fighter, the devil's got some signature moves. His signature moves include convincing human beings to not trust God, Another signature move is making a sin look really, really small before we do it. Like, that's not a big deal. No one's going to notice. And then his other signature move is making our sin look really, really big and unforgivable after we do it. But on top of it all, Satan also has a secret weapon. His secret weapon is a traitor, uh, a person on the inside. And that traitor on the inside is our sinful nature. So Satan knows that whenever he throws a temptation at us, there is a soft and cozy landing place for it inside of our sinful heart. Right? And so for these reasons and many other reasons, in his long history of tempting human beings to sin, Satan is undefeated. One way or another, eventually, 
he gets all of us to fall. And he does it many times. In the other corner, we've got Jesus Christ, also known as the Son of God, also known as the Son of Man, also known as the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. And this is the Savior that God has been promising to send ever since that fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. This is the one who is going to crush the serpent's head. And he, too, boasts an impressive resume. First of all, he's God. So he's been around forever, since before Satan even existed. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And then, having taken on human flesh, he's also man, but he's a perfect man with no sinful nature. His heart is pure. It's totally aligned with his Father in heaven. There is no cozy landing spot in Jesus' heart for any of the devil's temptations. And finally, this fighter, too, has a secret weapon. It is the weapon of self-sacrificing love. Jesus loves human beings so much I mean, this is why he's here. He came to earth to fight for them, to live for them, to die for them. No weapon in Satan's whole arsenal is as strong as Jesus' weapon of perfect love. So, with the introductions complete, our match is ready to begin. The two fighters step to the middle of the arena and they touch gloves. And as I'm imagining this, right, there's no human spectators in this fight because they're in the middle of the wilderness. But can't you imagine the stands packed with angels and demons, each group cheering for their respective champion? The bell rings, and the battle begins. Round one. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. On the surface, let me just ask you, on the surface, does that not seem like kind of a weird temptation? Like, is this even technically wrong? Is it sinful to turn a stone into bread? That's not one of the Ten Commandments, right? After all, if Jesus is the Son of God, can he kind of do whatever he wants? Well, the answer is, not really. He can't really do whatever he wants, not if he's going to experience human life the way that we do. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a minute and think about this. If you or I were starving to death in a desert with no food to be found anywhere, what would be our only option for survival? After we're done spelling out SOS with rocks and after we're done looking everywhere for food and there's not any, Running out of options down to only one option, we would simply have to pray to God to rescue us, right? Maybe God is going to send help in some way, or else, I guess, we're going to die and go to heaven. But we don't get to take control of the situation if we're lost in the wilderness with no food. We are not able to snap our fingers and simply get whatever we want. And throughout the course of our life on earth, we find ourselves actually in many situations like this. There are many situations in life that are totally out of our control. And our only option, really, is to trust God and leave it in his hands. That's easy for me to say, but it's hard for us to do, isn't it? It is very, very tempting for us to take every situation into our own hands. It's very tempting for us to obsess over things that we have no control over. It's tempting for us to put ourselves 
in the place of God. And when you describe it that way, maybe you recognize something, that this specific temptation of not trusting God, taking things into one's own hands, even eating some forbidden food, this is not a new temptation that the devil has come up with. This is a very old temptation. In fact, this is the original temptation. This is what Satan led off with in the Garden of Eden. Right? A temptation to not trust God, take things into their own hands, eat something that they weren't supposed to eat. And you think about this temptation, it was so appealing that Adam and Eve fell for it, even though they were in a garden full of fruit, unlimited food, they were lacking nothing in this perfect paradise, and they still fell into this temptation, fell into sin. Now, Satan rewires this same temptation, and he brings it out for Jesus at the end of a 40-day fast, as Jesus is sitting in a bleak and empty wilderness without a crumb of food to be seen. And the devil makes it as attractive as possible. He says to Jesus, Are you really sure that your Heavenly Father knows what you need? Are you really sure that your Heavenly Father is going to take care of you? It doesn't look like he's taking care of you. Can you not just set aside your principles for one minute and take things into your own hands and help yourself? It's a powerful temptation. It's worked before. It's worked on all of us at different times in our life. But it doesn't work on Jesus. Jesus perfectly evades this temptation, and what he uses to do it is the word of God. Jesus answers, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me ask you this. We talked about this in a Bible study a few weeks ago. Have you ever seen a perfect athletic move? Like, no entire game is perfect in sports. I mean, baseball pitching aside, I suppose. But like, a flawless move. Let's say it's one tumble in gymnastics. It's one dive in diving. One move where you look at it. One perfect football catch. And you say, that is, that's how you're supposed to do it. If I drew it up, it would look that way. That was flawless. This is what it's like to watch Jesus as he faces temptation. Like, this is textbook. This is what you're supposed to do. Perfect trust in God. No desire to even think about a tiny little thing that's going to go against God's will. Perfect use of God's word to drown out all the devil's lies. So round one goes to Jesus, and it's not even close. All right, let's move to round two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. On the surface, does this seem like kind of a weird temptation also? Like, is Jesus really going to jump off a cliff and hope that angels are going to catch him? Or is Jesus really going to be tricked by the devil misquoting the Bible? Seems a little strange, but I think the key to understanding this temptation is to look at just the first few words. If you are the Son of God, right? Implying, of course, that maybe he's not. And as Jesus lies there in the desert, half-starving and alone, I don't know that he looks very much like the Son of God, and I don't think he probably feels very much like the Son of God either. So Satan is saying to him, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you prove it? 
By the way, if you're paying attention later in the Gospels, uh, when you see Jesus dying on the cross, you will see Satan recycling this same temptation. Remember what people said as they walked by Jesus on the cross? If you're really the Son of God, why don't you come down from there? We'll believe in you right now. That's not just people talking. This is the devil tempting, refreshing this temptation at that time. But, so anyway, this is the temptation. And Jesus is being tempted, essentially, to stand up for himself, to defend his pride, to prove that he really is who he claims to be. Except Jesus didn't come to earth for himself. Jesus came to earth for us. And testing God to defend his own personal pride would not only be selfish, it would be sinful. And when you put it that way, maybe this temptation doesn't sound so weird after all. Maybe we start to recognize this temptation too. How often have we been tempted to do something that we know is wrong because we want to defend our pride? Because we want to look good in front of others? Because we want to keep our good reputation? How often have we been willing to throw somebody else under the bus so that we can save ourselves? Once again, this is a powerful temptation. It's worked before. It's worked on all of us at one time or another in our lives. But it doesn't work on Jesus. And Satan offered up this temptation with a misquoted Bible verse from a psalm about angels that was not talking about jumping off a cliff to test God. And so Jesus responds with a Bible quotation of his own. Jesus answers, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, textbook response to temptation. Jesus uses God's word to drown out the devil's lies. Round two goes to Jesus, and it's not even close. So, I don't know if you've noticed this, the devil hasn't landed a punch yet. Things are not going very well for Satan in this match. But maybe, maybe things will change in round three. We read, again, that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The devil, quite possibly, has saved his best temptation for last. I know what you're maybe thinking. Like the previous two, at first, this sounds kind of weird. Like, Jesus is God. Is he really going to bow down and worship the devil? Jesus helped to create the entire world. Jesus is in control of all of its kingdoms and all of their splendor. Uh, it, doesn't he already own these things? Of course he does. But as you think about this temptation, I want you to remember two things. First, Jesus has been spending more than a month in the wilderness looking at nothing but sand and dust and rocks. And secondly, all sins are equally dangerous in God's sight, including not only sins of action and word, but also sins of thought. When you look at it that way, do you realize how this might be the hardest temptation of all? If you or I had been sitting in the wilderness for a month with nothing to look at but sand and rocks, and all of a sudden we could see all the wealth and all the beauty and all the power of the world in front of our eyes so vividly that we could practically reach out and touch it. And if we were told, you can have all of this right now, if you just bow down and worship me. I think no matter who was making that offer, would we not at least be tempted to consider it for a minute and to imagine how awesome all of that wealth and power would be? But if Jesus considers it for a minute 
and thinks how awesome all that wealth and power would be, there would be terrible consequences for us. Because what does God say in the book of James? He says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. A single sin, even in his thoughts, would have made Jesus a little bit less than perfect. He would be a flawed, incomplete Savior. And we would have a flawed, incomplete salvation. But Jesus perfectly resists this temptation as well. And again, he uses scripture to do it. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Yet again, perfect resistance. Not even a sin of thought in his mind. Satan has brought out his best and sneakiest attacks. And not only has he lost the battle, he hasn't even landed a single punch. So the final bell rings and the match is over. I think it's fair to say this has been a complete embarrassment on Satan's side, particularly considering his successful history of tempting. Right? And can't you picture Satan slinking away from the ring to the boos and hisses of the crowd? He's lost. He's been embarrassed for now. But as we turn to Luke's gospel, we find a notable detail at the end of this account. Luke reminds us, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. There would be rematches. There would be lots and lots of rematches. But for now, the fight is over. And so Matthew closes out our sermon text. He says, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. One more boxing picture. Can you picture the fighter in the corner and he's got the one trainer massaging his shoulders and someone's kind of spraying water into his mouth and they're sponging off the blood where he's been punched in the face? Except in Jesus' case, there's no blood because he hasn't been hit. He has no wounds. He's totally victorious, at least spiritually. And so the only reason the angels are coming is to sustain him physically and give him the food that he's been trusting in God for and waiting for ever since this first temptation began. All right, so here's a picture of, you know, I don't know which peak it was, which mountain it was, or if Jesus is in a cave or where, but this is a picture of the Judean wilderness where these events occurred. If you could go back in time to 30 AD, what would you see? Well, on the outside, you wouldn't see anything real impressive. You certainly wouldn't see a boxing ring. All you'd see would be dirt and sand and dust. And tucked in there somewhere would be a miserable, half-starved person lying on the ground. Not much to see on a physical level. But spiritually, a monumental victory had just taken place. Mankind's ancient enemy, the tempter, with all his victories over the years, had just been thoroughly beaten, embarrassed by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, now here's the question. What does any of this have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us. And the Romans text that we read in our second reading, it sums it up very nicely. That text reminds us, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. In other words... When Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he got them to eat that fruit, and he got them to fall, this caused an enormous amount of damage. 
Not only had Adam and Eve been pulled into sin, but the whole entire human race had been pulled into sin. All of us, all of their descendants. It's as though with a single massive blow, Satan had effectively knocked out the entire human race. And since that time, Satan hasn't been resting. And you know this, and I know this. Every time one of us is born into this world, the devil waits for his opportune moments, and then he comes at us with his temptations, and he batters us with relentless attacks that are suited to our setting and our time of life, but we face temptation after temptation after temptation. And because of that sinful nature that is inside of us, that cozy landing spot for temptations, eventually, inevitably, Satan gets us to fall. He does it again and again. And then he hits us while we're down, pounding us with guilt and shame over our sins, making us feel unlovable, unforgivable. Satan is the ultimate bully. But if you're getting bullied by someone that is bigger and stronger than you, there's one thing that you need. You need a helper. You need someone who's bigger and stronger than the bully. You need a defender. You need a champion. And this is what is happening in the Judean wilderness in 30 AD. It is nothing more and nothing less than this. It is Jesus stepping up to our tempter, the devil, and saying, hey, pick on someone your own size. And then, as we can see, the results are fantastic. Jesus defeats the devil with textbook precision, dodging every attack, avoiding every temptation. And Jesus continues to do it his entire life, all 33 years, until finally the day comes for Jesus to strike the knockout blow. And that happens on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem on the Passover day as Jesus goes to the cross and takes upon himself all of our sins and all of our failures and every time we've ever fallen into temptation. And he takes all that guilt upon himself and he pays the price for all of it. And by doing that, Jesus takes away Satan's power to accuse. Satan can't accuse us of sin anymore because Jesus has taken the sin and its punishment away. And sure enough, three days later, Jesus rises from the grave, proving that he's taken away sin's greatest consequence, the consequence of death. And here's the best part. All of it, Jesus' perfect life, his perfect record against temptations, his death on the cross, his payment for sin, his knockout blow against death at Easter, all of it counts for us. Because it's a great exchange. His victories for our losses. And in this way, Jesus undid all the damage that Adam had brought to the human race through his initial fall into sin. We read, just as through the disobedience of that one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of this one man, the many will be made righteous. Including you. Including me made righteous and made victorious by our perfect Savior. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.